You may be seated. Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, I would like to invite you to turn it with me to Psalm chapter 95, that passage that Amanda read just a moment ago, Psalm chapter 95. If you're new to the Bible, um, don't worry. Psalm is pretty much right in the middle. So if you go to the middle of your Bible, eventually you'll find Psalm and then chapter 95. The chapters are those big numbers. The verses are the small numbers. So keep going till you find chapter 95. We are currently in a sermon series called Closer, in which we are seeking to both understand and apply to our lives what are often called spiritual disciplines. If you have not been with us the the first two weeks, let me just encourage you to go to our website, firstsf.com, and under the media tab, you'll be able to find the previous sermons. Those first two sermons in this series are vitally important because in those sermons, we talked about why the spiritual disciplines are important, the purpose of them. And then last week, Mike showed us how the scriptures are truly foundational to all of the other disciplines. And so let me encourage you, go find some time the next week or so, listen to those two sermons because everything else is going to be building on that. I don't know about you, but this sermon series already has been very challenging and impactful on me my own pursuit of God, I pray that it has also been that for you. The reality is that you, every single one of you in this room, were created for, you were made for, you were designed to know God and to pursue Him, to grow closer to Him. And that's why this sermon series matters so much. As a quick reminder, let me give you the, the definition of spiritual disciplines that we're working from. It's a, de- it's a definition by Donald Whitney, and it says this, Spiritual disciplines are those practices found in Scripture that promote spiritual growth among believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are habits of devotion and experiential Christianity that have been practiced by the people of God since biblical times. So the spiritual disciplines, as we've talked about these last two weeks, are specific actions that God calls us to and then empowers in our lives so that we can know him and grow closer in our relationship to him, so that we can pursue godliness. They are the actions that we do trusting that God alone can produce change in our hearts. I said this a couple weeks ago, but I just want to remind you this morning, if you are here and you are at the early stages, you have questions about Christianity, you're, you're searching, you're trying to understand what Christianity is all about, here's one thing you need to understand. It is impossible to draw closer to God if you do not know him. It's impossible to get closer in your relationship with God if you do not have a personal relationship to him. Today, the starting point for knowing God, as we see over and over in the scriptures, is that God has made a way for us to know him through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's the thing, if you have not been forgiven of your sin through the work of Jesus Christ, then it's impossible to know God. The Bible tells us there is a chasm between us and God that no matter how much human degree of effort we put in, we cannot close that chasm. We can't know Him. Our sin keeps us from knowing God. But the good news this morning is that God did what we could not do. Whereas we could not cross that chasm, God came and made himself known to us. He made a way for us to be in relationship with him through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And what we find in the Bible is that if we respond to what Jesus has done by both repenting of our sins 
and trusting in Christ, what he's done for us, trusting in him as Savior and Lord, then we can be reconnected to God. That sin that kept us distant from God can be forgiven so that we can know him personally, so that we can walk with him, that we can be part of his family. And in the spirit, what the Spirit does is he gives us a desire to know God further. My prayer for every one of you in this room is that you would know Christ in that way. But my other prayer is that if that's how you know Christ, that you would realize, as we're talking about in this series, that our salvation is merely the starting point for knowing God. That's the starting line. You see, the scriptures tell us over and over that our God is infinitely great. Psalm 145.3 says this, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. What that is telling us is that our God is infinitely great. He is infinitely wise. He is infinitely good. He is infinitely powerful. He is infinitely merciful. He is infinitely beautiful. No matter how much we may know him, there is always more to know. But the miracle upon all miracles is that God has revealed himself to us. He has made a way for us to know him. And so now, what are we going to do? Are we going to live out these practices that God has said, you draw near to me and I will draw near to you? That's what the spiritual disciplines are all about. And today, as we talk about a new spiritual discipline, we're going to talk about a discipline that in essence brings all of the other disciplines together. And it is the discipline of of worship, the spiritual discipline of worship. Now, I think defining worship is very, very important because I believe that in our modern times, oftentimes, even in the church world, uh, we equate singing with worship, right? We think, well, worship is what we do when we come together and there are the two or three songs that we sing, or it's a type of a genre of music that I listen to on the radio every once in a while. That's my worship. Well, when you look at the scriptures, yes, singing is part of worship, but what you find is that worship is so much bigger than just singing. Singing is a very small, minute portion of what we're talking about with this word worship. So I looked all over the place for definitions of worship, and in essence, after looking at all of them, I combined them into a definition that I'm going to give you this morning. Here's the definition that I'm going to work from. Worship is the practice of focusing on God in such a way that you see his worth and respond to him with your whole being. Okay? If you're taking notes, write that down. Worship is the practice of focusing on God in such a way that you see his worth and you respond to him with your whole being. We get a tremendous picture of that happening in Psalm chapter 95, the psalmist sets his eyes on who God is and what God has done. He sees God's worth, and his response is, I'm going to change everything about my life. He responds in worship. He responds with his emotions. He responds with the surrender of his will. He responds with singing, with shouting, all of these different things, because he rightly sees who God is. You see, most people in America, if you believe the polls, they believe that there is a God. Read any poll and you'll find most Americans would say, I believe there's a God. I believe there's a creator. Sometimes I even pray to God. Even if I don't really know who he is, I believe he is there. Many people believe in God. But the problem for Americans, but many in general, is not that they don't believe in a God, 
but instead they are unaffected and unaware of his worth. For many of us, that is the problem. Not that we believe there's a God, it's that we are unaffected and unaware of his value, of his worth, of what a relationship with him is actually all about. Sadly, this is even true of many Christians. If you want to know the difference between a a very weak Christian life that just kind of gets by, that kind of limps along day after day, and a transformed Christian life, the difference is not do I believe in God or do I not. The difference is worship. Am I truly understanding the value of our God? Far too many of us find ourselves in the position of a man in Arizona that I was reading about in a recent news article who was trying to get rid of his possessions because he was going to move into a retirement home. It's a really interesting article. As part of his preparation to move into that home, he invited an auctioneer into his garage to authenticate a poster that had been signed by LeBron James. He wanted to know, how, not by LeBron James, it was by Kobe Bryant. He wanted to know how much is this autograph really worth. And so the auctioneer came into his garage And he came and he looked at it and he said, yes, this was signed by Kobe Bryant. It's probably worth about $300. But what caught his eye when he was in this guy's garage was a painting that was in the corner of the garage that was literally collecting dust. As he looked at that painting in this article, he said, the moment I set my eyes on it, I said, my goodness, that looks like a Jackson Pollock painting. He looks at it and he asks the man, can I take this with me? I'd just like to spend some time with it. I'd like to examine it. I want to know the, the, the roots of that painting. The man's like, sure, it's just been sitting in my, my garage for all these years. So this man takes it and he takes it to his shop. And over the next course of weeks, he puts everything else aside. All of his other work he puts aside to examine every single detail of that painting. As he was examining it, he said these words. And I wanted to read it because I just thought this was interesting. He said, As I was looking at the painting, I actually felt weightless. I was kind of worried that I was actually having a panic attack. So you see that? He sees this painting. He believes, man, this could have worth, and it changes everything. His emotions are in this thing, his will. He sets other things aside, and it's very fitting that he did so because that painting, I think there's a picture of it, was a Jackson Pollock. $15 million that painting is worth. Now, I want you to go back and think about the guy that had that in his garage, collecting dust. That man in the garage walked by that painting every day. He no doubt saw the painting. He no doubt probably moved that painting a number of times in order to move things around in his garage. But what was his problem? When he looked at that painting, he saw no value. And I truly believe that that is the problem for so many of us. Instead of seeing that painting like the auctioneer saw that painting where he he said, this is of, of great worth, this is of more worth than any other painting that I've ever touched in my life, we look at God and we say, I believe there's a God, but I'm unaffected, I'm unaware of His value. And that leads us to lives absent of worship. Psalm 95 is calling us to do exactly what the auctioneer did with that painting. Worship calls us to look intently at our God, to look at the details of who he is, to look at his works, to say, this is what our God has done, to look at it and gaze upon it until the value and the beauty and the worth of God changes everything in our hearts. This is what we're talking about when we talk about worship. 
one of the most important texts about worship in the New Testament, came in the context of Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. If you've ever heard that story, you know that as she, they're in the midst of this conversation, she's worried. She's talking to Jesus about the location of worship, what that worship should look like. But Jesus says, look, it's not the outward expression of worship that matters. It's not the location. But what does Jesus say? We read it in John 4, 23. He says, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in what? In spirit and in truth. In other words, the first thing that you need to know about worship this morning is this. Worship should engage both your head and your heart. If it's true worship of God, it will engage both your head and your heart. As you look at Psalm 95, they are worshiping in all kinds of ways, right? They're singing, they're praising, they're shouting, they're kneeling. But the most important word in Psalm chapter 95 is that small preposition, for. That word for tells us what? It tells us why they are worshiping, why they are exalting. While they, why they are praising and they are singing and they are kneeling. Let's look at it together. He says this, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Why? For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights and the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. He then goes into more worship. He says this, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Why? For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Friends, I don't want you to miss this. The psalmist says the reason that he is exalting, the reason that he is singing, the reason that he is praising is that he is focused on truths about God. His mind has been totally engaged in who God is. The first five verses look at God's sovereignty, his lordship, his, his, his sovereignty over all creation. He says the Lord is, is alone, is great. He points to the greatness of our God, and that results in worship. But then you look at the end of verses 6 and 7. Instead of pointing out God's greatness, what does he do? He talks about God being our God, our shepherd, our maker. Do you see what he's doing here? He's juxtaposing the greatness of God with the tenderness of God, the transcendence of God with the eminence of God, the personal nature of God in his heart as he thinks about these truths cannot handle it. It cannot help but do what? Burst into worship. When he thinks about who God is, he has to respond. As I was thinking about this, he does not come to worship like so many of us do on a weekly basis needing a certain style of music to get hyped up, a certain kind of liturgy, a certain form of worship, a, a certain room to worship in, a certain kind of lighting to set the mood right for worship. He does not need any of those things. Those are not bad things, okay? But those things do not what bring about worship. It is truths about God that bring about worship. 
when we see him for who he really is, when we see his value, we can't help but become worshipers. You see, that's why it's nonsense to say that a church's doctrine does not matter. That's why it's nonsense to say our view of scriptures, our view of God does not matter. True worship is impossible without understanding who the true God is. If we have anything less than what we read about in the scriptures, anything less than what we see in the the person of the living word, Jesus Christ, we do not have the true God. If we miss doctrine, we miss worship. Because worship comes out of doctrine. It comes out of truth. We must always measure our view of God by what he has revealed of himself in this book. Friends, if your worship is absent of truth, What's going to happen? You're going to end up worshiping a figment of your own imagination. You're going to end up worshiping a false God who looks and thinks exactly like you do. You're going to be worshiping a God who thinks and acts just like our culture. You're going to be worshiping a God who never confronts you, who always agrees with you. Friends, that is not the true God. Without the true God, without setting our focus on truths about God, there will be no true worship. A.W. Tozer, a great pastor and author, said this. He said, The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of Him. The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of Him. If you have ever wondered why here at First SF do we spend so much time in the Scriptures? Why do we make the sermon such a focal point in, in the middle of a service? Why, do we, why are we careful about the songs that we sing, making sure that they're full of truth and not just full of catchy phrases? Why does all this matter? Because until we look at truths about God, there cannot be true worship. Does that make sense? Worship is birthed out of keeping our gaze on who the true God is. But what does Jesus also say? He says we're to worship in truth and in spirit. True worship engages both the head and the heart. Again, you see this in Psalm 95. When he thinks about these truths about God's greatness, when he thinks about God as a creator, when he thinks about God as our shepherd, these are not just facts that he puts in his knowledge collection, right? Now, what you see happen in Psalm chapter 95 is those truths in his head engage his heart in such a way that they literally are aflame, right? It comes out in all sorts of ways. It comes out in emotion. As he's praying and as he's doing this psalm, he says, let us rejoice unto the Lord, right? Let us sing with joy. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. It involves all of his emotions. But it doesn't stop there, does it? It also involves his will. When he thinks about God as our maker, what does he say? He says, let us bow down and kneel before the Lord our maker. Let us with all of our bodies surrender to God, saying, God, You are the one life is about, not myself. Anything that you want, I am yours. He says true worship doesn't just stay in the head. It's not just truths about God that we know. No, it engages the heart in such a way that it flows out in our emotions, in our will, in our attitudes, in our behavior. That, friends, is worship. John Piper says it this way. He says, truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy in a church full of artificial admirers. Think about that. Truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy, a church of 
artificial admirers. On the other hand, emotion without truth produces empty frenzy and calivates shallow people who refuse to think. When we worship, we must do so with our head and our heart. Let me just apply this for you today. As I was thinking about this text and thinking about my own personal worship, what this text is saying is that it is very possible for you week in and week out to come here and to listen to biblically sound teaching, to listen to truths about God. But here's the reality. If these truths that we talk about on Sunday mornings do nothing to your heart, they do not enlighten your heart, they do not inflame your heart, they do not come out in any way, friend, you can be here every Sunday, but you have not worshiped. The other reality is this. We can come together on a Sunday morning and sing those words that we sang earlier. Holy, holy, holy. Talking about the holiness of our God. But if all his holiness is is a a fact that's in our mind, but it never changes us, it never transforms us, it never calls us to confession or repentance, friends, you can sing all you want, but you will not have worshipped. You can give to the offering, but you will not have worshipped. You can do all sorts of prayer meetings, but you will not have worshipped. Unless God's truth about who he is changes your heart, then it is not worship. That's what we see in this text. All of these things, absent of a heart caught on fire, are drudgery. We've probably all been there, right? You've been there where maybe for a season of your life, everything about Sunday morning was drudgery. Singing, drudgery. Reading the Bible, drudgery. Things that I just have to do. Here's my question to you. Why would you settle for drudgery when you could have delight? Why would you settle for drudgery when you could have delight? If the Holy Spirit is in you, if you are a follower of Jesus You do not have to settle for drudgery. The Holy Spirit delights in knowing and pursuing God. He delights in it. God is not pleased with our motions of worship. Uh, Think about it this way. This last week was Valentine's Day. If you didn't know that, you're probably a little bit too late. I apologize. But I want you to imagine that on last Wednesday, I come to Rachel and I put together the most wonderful gift. I write a letter, and I get her the best gift, and and I give it to her, and she is overjoyed with that gift. She comes to give me a hug. She says, Ryan, thank you. And I, I just do this, and I say, well, Rachel, it's no problem. It was my duty. As your husband, I'm expected to do that. It is my duty. How do you think that's going to go? Not very well, right? Rachel does not desire my duty. What does she desire? My delight. How much more should we delight in our God who created us, who designed us, who pursued us even when we had turned our back against him, who loved us, who saved us, and who will one day bring us into his presence for eternity? Why do we settle for drudgery in worship when we can have delight in knowing this God who has made himself known to us? God does not desire just actions. If you don't believe me, look at at what Jesus says to the Pharisee in the New Testament. The Pharisees had all the head knowledge, right? They knew all the right things to do. They knew all the right beliefs about God. They even did all those things, right? They thought they were worshiping. But what does Jesus say? Matthew 15, verse 7. You hypocrites. 
Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. My goodness, my prayer for each one of you is that the same will not be said of your worship. That you are doing all the right motions. You are going to church. You're singing the songs. You're giving, but your heart was far from the Lord. He desires worship. He is worthy of worship that engages both our heads and our hearts. But that's not all. As you look at the Psalms, you find something else, that our worship should not only be both with head and a heart, but our worship should exist both privately and publicly. Both privately and publicly. What we do privately in our time alone with God and what we do corporately as we worship together go hand in hand in bringing us, drawing us closer to God. We see this in the Psalms. Like I said, there are some Psalms, if you read them, there are all sorts of forms of worship in the Psalms. There's worship in the midst of defeats, worship in the midst of victories. There's worship that has great joy. There's worship with lament. There's worship with confession. There's worship with praise. All sorts of worship in the Psalms. But one of the things that you may have missed is that some of the Psalms are an individual crying out in their heart to God. There's pictures of private, personal devotion. They say, God, you have done this for me. I call upon your name for this. I I praise your greatness. They're very personal in nature. They're private in nature. They're intimate. But then there are other times, like what you see here in Psalm chapter 95, where they're plural, right? Look at the text. It says, let us sing for joy. Let us shout aloud. Let us bow down. Let us kneel. He is our God We are his people. They're plural, right? Psalm chapter 95 is a call to worship, not just privately in your your home or with your family, but it's a call to worship in the midst of community. Both private and personal, both private and personal worship and corporate worship are needed if we are to grow in our relationship with God. Jesus himself is a perfect example of this, one of many in the scriptures that you find. Where do you find Jesus? Oftentimes you find him at the synagogue, right? Every week he was worshiping with others at the synagogue. But then what do you also find Jesus doing? Drawing away to a desolate place, desolate place to spend personal time with the Father. He saw that both public worship and private worship were necessary together. Sadly, I think many Christians live up to one, but they negate the other. They say, I have this, so I don't have to have that. I've been around friends who have told me, Ryan, my walk with Christ is really good. It's so good, I don't really see the need for a church family. I don't see the need to gather on a regular basis with others to to worship. My walk with Christ is really close. I'm deep with God. The problem, friend, is that God says otherwise. Throughout the New Testament, people are called to worship in the midst of the community of faith. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 says this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. It's a message to the community. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us that we are not to neglect meeting together as as many have done, but instead we are to meet together regularly encouraging one another because the day of Christ's return is drawing near. Wherever you look, you cannot escape the reality that that our spiritual lives need worship with other believers. 
One of the reasons I think that, that God has put this need in us is that when we worship with others, there are other facets of who God is, of his character, of his attributes that we see that we will not see if we worship God in isolation. If you worship God and you say, I'm a Lone Ranger Christian, I can just do this thing, you will miss picture, the fully vibrant picture of God. But when we worship with people, especially those who are different than us, think about it. In this room, you have all ages. You have male, female. You have people of different races, people of different social classes. The more that we worship in a diverse community, the more of God that we see. And that's why it does not matter this morning if you have the devotional life of of the great Christian saints, right? If you have the devotional life of Billy Graham or Corey Ten Boom, it does not matter. If you lack public worship, you're doing so to the neglect of your own soul. You are part of a body, which means the body needs you and you need the body. And that takes place as we worship, as we sing together, as we give together, as we pray together, as we open the scriptures together. These things take place publicly. But on the flip side of that, let me say this. If the only time you worship God during the week is publicly here on Sunday mornings, then, friend, your worship is only going to be very surface level. A.W. Tozer, again, said a, a very strong statement. He said this, If you will not worship God seven days a week, you do not worship him one day a week. If you will not worship God seven days a week, you do not worship him on that Sunday. What he's getting at is that our private devotional lives, the time where we come before God's presence and we put our focus on him, we align our hearts with him, we worship him in confession, we worship him in prayer, we worship him in singing, we worship him with praise and adoration and thanksgiving. Those times are not only preparation for our day, which we desperately need, by the way, but those times with God are also preparation for our public worship on Sundays. I will tell you this, in my experience, the people that are most ready to engage with God on Sunday mornings are those who have been engaging with God throughout the week. They've been worshiping throughout the week. They've been singing. They've been confessing. They've been praying. They've been praising throughout the week. And they come in ready on Sunday morning. And I'll just add this. The greatest time of preparation that you need to set aside for Sunday mornings is that time from Saturday night to service on Sunday morning. I've told you this before, but I find most people, even Christians, do the exact opposite. We save Saturday nights for our busiest time of activities. We stay out late, and we get up late on Sunday morning, and we get here right in time, and then we wonder, why is my experience of God so distracted? Why am I so weary when I should be worshiping? Could it be, friend, that the drudgery of your Sunday mornings reflects the drudgery of your personal worship of God? It starts on a weekly basis every day focusing on God until you see his value until it changes how you live we need worship that is both public and private they go together to catalyze our faith in Christ now as we close I haven't given you many hows right I haven't told you what worship should look like should you be standing should you be sitting should you be singing I haven't given you all those things because here's the thing all that I would tell you in that area of how you should worship is stick with what the Bible gives you. <laughs> there are times in Scripture where it says the most appropriate thing to do when you are focusing on God's holiness is to do what? Is to fall down to your knees and to confess your sin. 
There are some times where you're focusing on the tremendous love of God, of the mercy, of the gospel, of what he's done for you. And the appropriate response is to sing. It may be to shout. It may be to close your eyes and lift your hands up. There are times where we must stand. There are times where we must sit and be still. There are times we must pray. There are times we must give. But the forms of worship, friends, are not as important, right? Those are the outflow. What's important is the heart of worship. What is happening within? Are you focused on God in such a way that you see his value and you respond in worship? I would encourage you in this church family, we have our forms of worship. We have our liturgy. We have all these things. But friend, just know you are free to worship as God has led you to worship. If you need to sit down and pray, you sit down and pray. If you need to stand up and sing, you stand up and sing. If you need to come to the front and kneel, you kneel. You are free to worship in this place. What is important to us is your heart. Are you truly engaging with the God who is the only one who is worthy? It does not matter who you are in this room today. If I could look at every single one of you in the eyes, I would look at all of you. It does not matter who you are today. You are a worshiper. The world is not divided into people who worship and people who do not worship. The world is divided into people who worship things that are not worthy of their worship and people who worship the God who is only worthy of worship. This morning, I would ask this simple question. Where are your eyes fixed? Where's your focus? In life, if you could look into your heart, and look into your mind, where are your eyes transfixed? What do you ascribe the most value to? Well, if you can answer those questions, you will find what you worship. I'm here to submit to you once again this morning that only God is worthy of your life. He has ultimate value. He is of great worth. We're going to see his value when we read the scriptures. We're going to see his value as we look at the life of Jesus. And one day when we stare at him face to face, we will know that even our greatest concept of his value is nothing in comparison to what it actually is. And so in preparation for that day, I join with Psalm 95 by saying to you, First Baptist Church, San Francisco, this morning, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he are, is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand.